baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. And we've packed this edition with guests in a moment. I'll be chatting with the European Space Agency's Senior Science Advisor about the launch and the latest on the James Webb Space Telescope. We'll also be looking ahead to the launch of the ExoMars rover with probably our best chance yet of finding traces of life on the Red Planet. And we'll be talking to Dr. Natalie Starkey, the author of a new book on volcanic worlds. As we're recording this, we've just heard that the James Webb Space Telescope has reached L2. That's its position in space where it'll be able to observe the cosmos. Looking back to the very dawn of time. <laughs> well, Webb was conceived some 30 years ago and it's taken more than a decade of construction. And Some people have been there throughout and, and they include ESA's senior science advisor and friend of the Space Boffins podcast, Mark McCochran. Now, you probably heard him in our, our last podcast giving an absolutely wonderful description of, of the telescope itself. And he was going to be going to Baltimore and was a bit disappointed that he wasn't going to be at the launch. And then what do we find when we look on social media? He's able to get there, lucky enough to witness the launch on an Ariane 5 from South America on Christmas Day. It was originally going to be on the 18th of December, and that was going to have lots of people who were, you know, VIPs, triple VIPs, you know, quintuple VIPs. It, it, it's not like Florida where lots of people can um, sort of go and stay in a hotel and just watch the launch. Kourou in French Guiana is a little bit uh, isolated. There's not so many hotels. So I had actually, along with the rest of the science team for years, thought, well, we're just not going. You know, even the scientists wouldn't be involved. So I was planning to go to Baltimore. Coronavirus started striking on the east coast of the US, and that led to the cancellation of some events. And then the launch through, you know, bits and pieces of last minute things happening got shifted um, to the 24th of December, Christmas Eve. All of the VIPs all dropped out. They said they weren't going. There were coronavirus issues as well, so people couldn't travel from the US so easily. Um, and I just thought, well, at this point, if I don't ask at least if I can go to Kourou, you know, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. So I just sort of took the plunge and said, you know, are there seats on the plane? Can I go? The, the charter plane, which we usually fly, that had been cancelled, so I had to scrabble around to get a commercial flight at the last minute. It turned out that I was actually the only person from the science directorate, senior person, who was there in the end. So, oh, wow. Uh, but I love the fact that you did that because it, this is so like, you know, loads of sports fans get very cross when, uh, you know, there are VIP boxes. And actually not just sport. It can be like the Royal Albert Hall with a concert and you see these boxes and spots and they're empty. <laughs> And you just think, oh, come on. We know people there who'd love to be there, who'd do anything to be there. So I'm delighted you got there and made that. And I'm assuming your marriage is still intact. <laughs> well, yeah, both the kids were home from university and got home on the 27th, but we just did Christmas Day on the 28th. So, Well, that's uh, very understanding of them. So what was the launch like? That must have been pretty emotional. It was, and in some ways, surprisingly so, because, you know, you've lived with this thing for so long and, you, and you, you know, kind of know what rocket launches are like. And, you know, I'd been down there the beginning of November to see James Webb before it was installed on the launcher. 
So I sort of had an emotional moment there seeing it for the very first time, which took me by surprise. But then when you, yeah, when you watch the rocket and it's five kilometers away, which seems like a long way, right? You think, well, I'd, I'd like to be a kilometer away or, you know, close up. Actually, five kilometers isn't, isn't yeah. bad because these yeah. things are very loud. It was early in the morning. It was full daylight, but, you know, as soon as the solid rocket boosters light up, there's this huge glow, bright light on the horizon and then of course the sound gets to you 10 15 seconds somebody will do the maths but you know a number of seconds later on because of the speed of sound and then it just washes over you and then the rocket's up in the sky and this rumble and crackle luckily i was there with uh, one other member of the science working group so the people that have been working uh, on this mission forever this is rene doyon who's the principal investigator of the canadian contribution the nearest instrument and he had come on the same basis, very last minute. He said, if I don't, if I don't try it, I'll regret yeah. it for the rest of my life. And the pair of us just looked at each other and we were both in tears. And it was, uh, yeah, it was oh, very, that's lovely. very well, special. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really happy for you. And, um, you know, the launch of any satellite or spacecraft or telescope, is, it's always risky. And James Webb had a number of sort of equally nail-biting hurdles to overcome in the weeks after its launch. So what for you since that launch has been the sort of manoeuvre way you've been like... <laughs> yeah, well, as you say, the launch is always risky at some level. But for us, the the big thing, I think, for most of us was the Sun Shield, the deployment of this tennis court sized floppy five layer bit of plastic and metal that was all folded up in, in pallets. So those pallets had to fold down first and then slowly but surely with wires and uh, motors and pulleys, that Sun Shield had to be deployed. And it's never been done in, in microgravity and zero G before. The full sun shield was never even deployed cold on the ground at these very low temperatures because there's no chamber big enough. So even though there was lots of analysis and lots of tests and lots of sort of, you know, feeling that there was a very good chance that it would work until it did, I think a lot of us were incredibly nervous and it went amazingly smoothly. Um, I'm not saying you felt cheated by how smooth it went. You know, there's <laughs> yeah, plenty of jeopardy involved along the way. We've, 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 it hasn't been a lack of excitement, but it was just amazing how well it worked. And I think that's just, you know, again, a testament to the, the years of, of work that people have done um, in trying every possible ground-based analog test, if you like. You know, how can we simulate this or that? How can we test? How can we model? How can we analyze? And it's proven you can. You can do this in space, something that many people thought was right at the hairy edge. Of, yeah, of well, was it's possible. so bold, isn't it? It's ambitious. Ambitious is a sort of understatement, really. Yeah, you know, the, the whole thing as well, because, you know, you get the you get the rocket, fine. You know, rockets, how they work, and there's a 1%, 2% chance that might fail. But the sun shield, how do you even put a number on that? Yeah. Because it's never been done before. How do you put a number on a big cryogenic deployable mirror that has to unfold? And some people thought, you know, the secondary mirror folding over from behind like a praying mantis, that was the moment for them, because without that happening, we had no telescope. We just had bits of bits of beryllium pointing at the sky. So everybody had their moment of risk, but none of these things had, had, had ever been done before in space. And when you add it all up, the risk profile seemed very high to many people. I think the closer you got to the project, the lower the risk profile seemed in, in the sense that people knew what they had done to test it. They knew what had been developed, what had gone wrong, what had gone right. But if you looked at it from the outside and you thought, 
you know, what are the chances of that working? I think people in the general public were probably more worried than the people in the project, in the project, <laughs> but those of us in the project certainly were pretty nervous as well. So what's the next sort of important maneuver for the telescope? Well, the key thing now is that the whole the whole big structure is deployed. The secondary mirror, the primary mirror, has, uh, wings have been folded around, the sun shield's there. So the telescope's getting very cold now. Um, the secondary mirror, for example, which hangs out in front of the big primary, is already down to minus 233 degrees Celsius as of yesterday, probably even colder today. And that's vital. We need this thing to be cold. But in a sense, that's that's kind of physics. That's happening on its own. The key thing now is to get those 18 hexagons, which make up the six and a half meter wide primary mirror. They're all misaligned at the moment. Um, they were all actually locked down against the structure for launch to, so they wouldn't get shaken around. They've all moved up now just over a centimeter into what's called a neutral position. They're still on motors and they're still, you know, they're not floating, but they're now in a position where they can, we can start assessing how much they need to be tipped and tilted and rotated and move backwards and forwards so that the starlight from each of those individual mirrors then gets focused into one location to make one star instead of 18. And it's not just focusing, it's not just or aligning, it's also making sure that the mirrors are to nanometer precision, kind of the same distance from the star, if you know what I mean. That's putting it in phase, because only if those mirrors are aligned and in phase will we get the superb resolution of the full six and a half meter mirror. And when's that going to happen? It started, and that process, it's been rehearsed at length. People know how to do it. It's it's complicated because you have, you know, 18 segments, which all have to be aligned to each other. It's going to take probably three months to do that. So there's a lot of iteration, send data down, analyze the data, work out what to do with mirror, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on. What do we move next? And you move tiny amounts, see what you get. So it's very iterative, but as I say, three months roughly from from today. Wow, that's great. Now, when do you think that those involved in the mission will actually stop biting their nails? Will it be <laughs> when when they get the first first data starts coming back? Yeah, you know, data are coming back in in the sense that some of the instruments are already talking to the ground. So we have a liveness test. We know that the instruments survived the launch and so on. Uh, some of the people who were involved in the big deployments, they've gone home already. They're done. They're over. They're finished. <laughs> the people involved in the mirror alignment, they're, they're on the spot now. Um, that will be a big deal uh, for them. And we not only align the mirror and the secondary, but of course, we have to make sure that all focused to the right places in the instruments. We have the four instruments on board at different locations in the focal plane, and they all have to be, uh, there's, there's an alignment which has to work for all of them. So that the instrument teams are now, will start taking data on their detectors and moving their wheels around and so on. And so they, they will start seeing real light. Um, it won't be a spectacular picture of a nebula or, or anything else. It'll just be a bright star. So some people will be very pleased to even detect light. But it won't be in focus yet, so others will be happy when we're, we're in phase. I, you know, I, I suppose that sort of moment of catharsis will come when we do put out the first beautiful colour images of whichever region it is in June or so. But along the way, you know, we'll be seeing things inside the project saying, well, that looks good, that looks good. <laughs> yeah. You know, may, Maybe that doesn't look good, and what do we do to fix that bit? Um, yeah. 
Well, we'll look forward to that. But um, before you go, Mark, um, we had a message from a, a podcast listener that we mentioned in the December podcast here, Tom Ettinger in the United States. Now, he said, I listened to your recent podcast on the Web Space Telescope. This and which is obviously our interview with you, this and the interview with Jessica Maya was, or Mia, was wonderful. I understand a bit of physics and a little special relativity. So when I listen to the podcast, a thought passed through like a flash of light that I can't sort out. Maybe you or your crew can. So you're, you're part of the crew now. <laughs> <laughs> he said, um, as I understand, as we look further away and therefore back in time, the redshift gets larger, indicating that the universe is expanding at an increasing rate. But these are changes in the universe that happened long ago and far away. How do we know that the acceleration is continuing today? Maybe those faraway places are now slowing and not continuing to accelerate, or do I have the whole thing wrong? Thank you for the amazing podcast. So, Mark, do you have, well, do you have an answer for that? <laughs> well, sort of. I mean, I'm not a cosmologist, so, you know, at some level you would need somebody to come in and talk very specifically about how we infer, for example, from the cosmic microwave background, which is very close to the beginning of the universe 13.8 billion years ago, and then the inter intermediate data points, which we get from supernovae and so on. So when we add all those things together, we get a a, a view of how the universe has how it was 13.8 billion years ago and how it's changed since. And my reading of that is there's no strong evidence that, you know, acceleration started at some point. I mean, acceleration didn't, the, the acceleration due to what we call dark energy, we believe only happened in a sort of halfway through that time. It wasn't happening in the early phase. Um, that, you know, there's no reason to believe that some piece of the universe will then have gone, undergone a collapse because it doesn't look any different 13.8 billion years ago to any of the other bits of the universe, which we have evidence for. You know, in that sense, Occam's razor would sort of say, well, look, pick the most simple thing. This bit around us today is accelerating. We have no reason to believe that the early universe was different from the bit we're sitting in today. So why would it have undergone a collapse when the bit around us isn't? Um, now, you know, there's a lot of cosmology behind that, which I'm not the right person to speak about. But, um, yeah, Tom's question isn't, isn't a, you know, it's not a wrong question. You can ask the question, but I think Occam's razor would say, well, pick the simplest solution. It's not collapsing around us. Why would it be collapsing somewhere else? Unless there's some, you want to invoke sort of some magic, some, something supernatural, which changed the universe out there. Universe, this sort of basic principle, the universe is homogeneous and isotropic. It looks the same everywhere on large scales. And when you look at the very early universe, that's how it looks. It looks, it looks the same everywhere on large scales. So why would another piece of the universe be different to the bit we're in today? Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Um, there you go, Tom. I hope you're happy with that. Um, Mark McCochran from ESA, thank you once again for joining us. My pleasure, Sue. ESA's Senior Science Advisor, Mark McCochran. I love that the James Webb Space Telescope has really captured people's imaginations, that it was the lead story on the BBC on Christmas Day. It's, it's one of those missions that's really broken through, and that's even before any pictures from it. Yeah, and um, I think be possibly because a little bit like Hubble, because it's had 
what feels like decades of advanced publicity and decades of, as as we've discussed before, of sort of negative publicity. Oh, it's not going to work. It's too complicated. And there were loads of issues with contractors and certain parts and delays. Uh, But when you finally hear that those enormous layers of the telescope have been stretched out and put into place and almost each development felt like a potential uh oh moment it's not surprising really that people have suddenly got behind it because it's when something extraordinary is tried whether it's someone trying to climb a mountain wearing swimming costumes or so you know something you just think oh this is ludicrous this is just you know your chances of succeeding are so minimal you then suddenly a bit like eddie the eagle get behind it not that i am contrasting well i sort of am no, you, you, eddie you're the contrasting eagle, it with <laughs> someone climbing a mountain in a swimming costume <laughs> well, <if you've> said- <laughs> and a 90s and a 1980s era british skier who failed who failed yeah, yeah. And if you've seen the film with taron egerton, uh, egerton it's brilliant if you haven't by the way just watch it it's hugh jackman and, and your wolf egerton. guy uh, yeah, yeah, Hugh, yeah, Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah my... um, Wolverine. <laughs> um, it, by the way, it, we have another podcast that we make uh, called the Supermassive Podcast, and that's got lots on the James Webb Space Telescope. So uh, do seek that out as well. Oh, that's very, very nice. When you say we make, we're, we're not presenting it. Well, we don't we, present no, it. No. We make you it. Produ- yeah, we, yeah, we produce it. We produce it. Yeah. It's a boffin media production. Oh, there you go. Mm. There you go. Yeah. Now, one of the most astounding pictures that was captured from space over the past few weeks showed that vast plume of ash spewing from the sea near the Pacific island of Tonga. And I sort of, I think because there's not much near it, you don't realise how huge it was, I, I think, until someone superimposed it over France. And it basically <laughs> covered most of France. I don't know if you saw that, but I just thought, wow, now now I get an idea of how huge it was. Well, that eruption from an underwater volcano caused a tsunami and was so loud it could be heard one and a half thousand miles away. Now, fortunately, only a few people were killed, but it covered the island in ash, destroyed houses and severed communications cables. Now, volcanoes are one of the forces helping to shape our planet, but volcanoes elsewhere in the solar system are even more extraordinary. Dr Natalie Starkey is a cosmochemist, public engagement officer for the Open University and the author of Fire and Ice, The Volcanoes of the Solar System. Hi, Natalie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. Now, let's just talk about, you know, volcanoes in general before we get on to the really weird ones in parts of the, of the solar system. Uh, and I was, you know, quite intrigued by this this idea, really, which is at the heart of your book. You've got... I suppose we think of volcanoes as destructive, but you're really saying they are constructive. I mean, they create land, they create fertile soil, and and they release gases which could become atmospheres. Yes, it's terribly destructive and and awful for people that live nearby to these volcanoes. But actually, at the same time, it's constructing new land. Now, that eruption in particular was so large that it's probably blown itself to pieces and there's actually less volcano there now than there was to start with because it had been slowly building up above the sea. But what you've got to remember is that this volcano started below the sea. So there's a lot of volcano that 
we don't see above the surface. And they're literally building new land for us. So it doesn't take long before new species start to inhabit these islands as they appear out of the oceans. And, and as you said, they also produce gases, which um, over history have been really important in, in our atmosphere for you know creating a life-giving world. Now, in Antarctica, you have these hydrothermal vents, which are these like mini little volcanoes on the bottom of the sea where they're still finding all manner of, of new species that hadn't been seen before. Is, is this the same in terms of on other planets that where you've got volcanoes, whether they're on the surface or, or beneath them or beneath a, a methane sea, perhaps, or what, what have you? you could have life. Yeah, now this is obviously one of the really exciting parts about space exploration. It's why many of us uh, are interested in space in the first place. Now, talking about those undersea uh, volcanoes and those hydrothermal vents that we find on our own planet. Now, it wasn't until the 1970s that we really started discovering these things and and really understanding that there was this whole different life living down there. Um, the Alvin Submersible went down. These, these places in our planet are really hard to get to. In fact, you can liken it to space exploration in some ways because these parts of our world are just as inaccessible as going out to you know a moon around Jupiter or something so we've got to get down sometimes four kilometers depth into the you know the harsh cold and pressurized depths of our oceans and then we've discovered that living off the kind of the heat pouring out of the insides of our planet um, there's this whole community of organisms that don't seem like they should be able to survive on our planet because they're living in really extreme conditions. But actually, by studying these organisms, we can start to understand what might be out there in the rest of the solar system, because we don't see environments out in the solar system that are necessarily like the surface of Earth. We we don't see these really nice conditions that, that humans require. But what we do see is the kind of conditions that we find at the base of our oceans. So comparing those two environments is really important if we want to understand what might be out there and where it might be lurking. Okay, well, you mentioned Jupiter's moons, and let's talk about life that might be lurking out there. Uh, so you've got, there's several moons of Jupiter with volcanoes. I guess the most, I mean, the one, my favourite, because it's exactly like uh, Mustafar and Star Wars, <laughs> is um, Io. Uh, there's not likely to be life there, but just, let's just talk about, well, maybe there is. Uh, let's just talk about Io, because that's an extraordinary sort of volcanic world, isn't it? Yeah, Io is a really extreme world. It's one of my favourite moons out there because it's almost like an early Earth. It's If we go back kind of four, four and a half billion years um, to the start of our planet, it probably was a little bit like Io is today. Um, it, there's very unlikely to be life on the surface of that planet or inside that planet because it's very hot and it's very, very volcanic, which makes it quite hard for organisms to survive. Not impossible, but quite hard for them to survive. And it doesn't have running water on its surface and all of the things that we think would be required for life. But it is really, really volcanic. And actually, it, it's we've seen so many eruptions happening. Every time we've gone past it with any spacecraft, we've been able to detect eruptions and plumes shooting out into space. So it's actually the most volcanically active object out there. It's a really exciting world. And what's driving all that activity? 
Yeah, it took a while to figure out actually, and um, and it 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 was really tricky to figure out because we haven't explored many of these worlds in much detail. We've got to remember we think we know so much about Jupiter and all these large planets and everything that's around them, but we've not visited them many times, and most of the time it's been flybys and you know not dedicated missions to each moon in particular. But what we've discovered about the the Jupiter system is that some of the moons that are, are orbiting around that large planet are affected by the massive gravity of Jupiter itself. And as these moons orbit around, they sort of get pulled and squashed and squeezed by Jupiter's gravity. And what happens, unbelievably to some, is that um, the insides of these moons are squashed and squeezed and the rock that's within them basically is rubbed all against each other and it creates friction, which creates enough heat to melt that rock, which seems completely insane. But this melting creates volcanoes at the surface. Now, um, that happens between particularly on Io, but it's not the only place this happens. It happens actually quite a lot of places throughout the outer solar system because we have these really, really large planets out there. So rather than the sun's energy, it's this gravitational energy, if you like, from these from these giant planets. Yeah, because actually, you know, people think, oh, you know, the Earth is quite close to the sun. And obviously, we can feel the heat of the sun every day if, if the sun's out, which in Britain, to be fair, is not that often. But we can feel the heat of the sun. But that's not what generates the heat within our planet. Um, so the sun really can't penetrate very deep. The heat of it can't penetrate very deep into into a world. Um, and obviously, on Earth, we have um, an internal heat engine, we've got our core. And within our mantle, we've got um, all this um, energy that's being generated from radioactive decay. So we've got internal heat that's trying to get out. And then in all the moons around Jupiter, or many of them around Jupiter, we've got that heat being generated from that gravitational energy squashing and squeezing, and it's called tidal heating. So there's different ways to heat worlds out there, but the result is the same. We create warmth, and then we can melt whatever that world is made of, and that can make volcanoes at the surface, whether they're made of a rock like we find at Io, or or if we go to somewhere like Europa, which is an icy moon, we can create um, liquid of that ice, which becomes its volcanic material. So we're not looking at rock there. We're looking at water being kind of the volcano's flows, which is quite hard to kind of get your head yeah, around. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to picture that. When these volcanoes erupt... What comes out of them? So at Europa and, and actually, so Europa is a moon of Jupiter and, and, and Enceladus, we've got the same thing happening. That's a moon of Saturn. What we've observed with missions is that we see plumes of material shooting out of these, um, of these icy surfaces. So you've got an icy, basically the crust of the world, like, like we have a rock. These worlds have an icy crust, usually of water and some other ices. And then below that, we know that they've got a big salty liquid ocean. So that acts like they're mantle on earth our mantle is made of rock and it it moves around and it, it will melt and it can rise to make volcanoes but on these on Enceladus and Europa we it's actually made of liquid water and it's that it's that material that's shooting out to create these plumes but these are their volcanoes and they're called cryovolcanoes because this would otherwise be ice and on Enceladus it's really exciting because the the, the plume actually creates one of Saturn's e-ring or it, it creates one of the rings it's called the e-ring and actually Enceladus sits with within that ring. And it's made up of little icy particles that have shot out of Enceladus's ocean. It's absolutely fascinating. Yes, we've discussed before on the podcast, particularly with um, Enceladus, these icy plumes coming out. But what I couldn't quite get, I hadn't actually got in my mind, is when you called them a cryovolcano, because I thought, I sort of envisaged them, because they would call them icy plumes, 
I didn't think volcano. I thought more like a geezer, like at Yellowstone, you know, yeah. or something like that. So I, I sort of want to know, well, what's the difference between an icy geezer and a cryovolcano? Yeah, and it's a great question. And it's actually one the scientific community have been asking themselves for many I'm years. very because, glad you said that. Yeah. Well, you know, until we started discovering these things in the solar system, we had a very kind of narrow view of what a volcano was because we only knew those on Earth and mostly the ones that we see on the surface. And so we often think of a volcano as this conical-shaped mountain, often with some snow-capped peak um, that erupts, you know, with a big plume like we've seen in Tonga recently. And, and that that's kind of what we expect to happen. There's lots of ash and, and pulverized rock um, or lava flows. But actually, when we start going out into the solar system, we've got to rethink what a volcano is, because on most of these worlds, we don't see these conical shaped mountains, but it doesn't mean we don't have volcanic activity. So we start to define it slightly differently. So for example, on, a, on Enceladus, we know that that material is produced because we've got heating from below. We've got internal heat that has to escape from that, that world. And the manifestation of that heat escaping is that plume. Now, it's different to a geyser, say, at Yellowstone National Park, because the geyser isn't necessarily volcanic. It's basically um, waters that have, have worked their way down into the crust and are heated by magmas that are below. So they're basically heated by the fact the Earth is warm and then they shoot out again but they're not volcanic in themselves so it's just creating that slight difference so these plumes um, that we see at Enceladus that are made of icy particles are very much like uh, you know plumes that we get from volcanoes on earth but they might be made of ash we're just having to rethink what our bedrock is made of and then think you know where where are we in the solar system as to what that volcano is and what it looks like. Now, we, we talked about this quite a lot on the podcast over the years and the possibility of life on Enceladus and uh, and or uh, Europa. Uh, and, and that's possible because of the water, but also because of this energy. Is that is that right? Yeah. So we're still not really sure what it takes to create life anywhere in the solar system or the universe. But we have, you know, our one data point, which is Earth. So we can base everything we know on Earth and go, OK, well, we have plate tectonics. We have heat within our planet that creates that. So that's our, our energy source. And we have liquid water, which so we think all of those things are really important. But maybe we don't need all of those. We're not 100 percent sure at the moment until we find life somewhere else. And does it also need all those ingredients to survive? So when we go to Europa and Enceladus, yes, we've got many of those same ingredients. We've got that internal energy from the core where it's being heated up and, and it's releasing that heat energy. We've got liquid water. And actually at the base of these oceans, in particular with Enceladus, we've discovered this, um, there's probably hydrothermal vents down there, just like we find at the base of our own oceans that we mentioned earlier. Um, and so there's every chance that this is a life-giving environment. Now, it just seems a bit strange because um, we know, for example, at Europa, that it sits within Jupiter's awful magnetic field and it's a very seemingly inhospitable environment. It's got a really high radiation environment. But at the base of this ocean, it might be protected from some of this uh, radiation and the energy that could be killing life because it's got this nice icy crust around it to protect everything. So we sort of need to go with a mission, which we are hopefully going to be doing with the JUICE mission later this uh, year and over the coming decade, we're going to learn more about these icy moons of Jupiter. But one of the things we'll do with Europa is look 
look at the chemistry of uh, everything that exists on the surface and look at there's lots of amazing cracks all over Europa and it's these cracks where material comes up from below and what we can start to do is measure their chemistry see if there are any kind of organic molecules sitting within there that have come up from below and then we can start to really answer that question is there something happening at the base of that ocean Space is awesome, isn't it? It's um, <laughs> let's talk about the, the probably the biggest, one of the biggest revelations to, to my mind over the last 10 years in space, Pluto. And these kind of, I don't know, are they volcanoes? It's kind of slush volcanoes, aren't they? It's extraordinary sort of slow motion slushy activity that's going on. Yeah. There. So Pluto is just an absolutely fascinating world and we've got so much more to learn um, and I hope one day we can go back but it's a really inaccessible place to get to in the solar system it's very hard to get to it because you know to get there if you want to get there quickly you're just going to shoot past it very quickly and not be able to get much information but what we have learned so far is that it is an active world. It has a lot going on. It's not just this frozen body of ice that just sits there silently doing nothing. Um, we see features on the surface that show it's been active in the geological, geologically recent past. And that probably means, you know, on the order of thousands, tens of thousands of years, which is amazing considering it's four and a half billion years old. Um, and we see things like we see a lot, a lot of water ice and nitrogen glaciers. And we also know there's ammonia on the surface. Now, ammonia has this special quality that it, if we add it to a bit of water ice, it can change its melting point so that it, you know, water ice at these really cold temperatures can actually flow like a, a slushy lava flow. So we just need to kind of rethink what these worlds are made of and the materials that are there on the surface and how they act under these different conditions. So it's very hard to compare everything to our own planet because, you know, things are so different out there. Now we're looking ahead to 2020. The rest of 2022, as we've only just begun in the podcast. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the joint European Russian ExoMars rover mission shortly. And when we're talking about Mars, does it still hold the record in terms of uh, the size of its volcanoes? Yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, Olympus Mons on Mars is is the largest mountain in the solar system. You know, it's 25 kilometers high. It's, it's just absolutely enormous. And, and the thing about it is that I've spoken about things being very different in the solar system, but actually it's very similar to some of the volcanoes we have on our own planet. And we've been able to study it and study places like uh, Kilauea at Hawaii. And we can compare those volcanoes because they are formed in exactly the same way. Um, so that's really cool. Like they, they're formed by this thing called mantle plumes, these kind of hot chimneys of rock that rise up from the interior of that world um, and produce volcanoes at the surface. And the difference about Mars is that that mantle plume has been active for a very long time. And because there's no plate tectonics on Mars, um, the, the surface has not moved away from that plume over time. So that volcano has simply built up and built up layers and layers of volcano over time and just made a really large volcano. Now, we couldn't do that on our own planet, partly because we have plate tectonics. So as we see with the Hawaiian volcano chain, we get a chain of uh, volcanoes in, in a line because that plate is moving away from that hot spot. Um, but we also couldn't have a volcano that big on our own planet because it would simply collapse under its own weight because we have more gravity because our planet's bigger. So yeah, Mars is, it's and it's not the only big volcano on Mars. There are others, but um, it's, it's definitely the most impressive. We're talking all the way through this podcast about 2022. What, what else are you looking forward to? Presumably ExoMars finally 
launching to Mars is is going to be one of your highlights. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, it's been a long time coming. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of interest on Venus recently. And we know we've had, you know, new missions announced to Venus. And I'm not bored of Mars yet. You know, I think it's good that we're going (laughs) elsewhere. They're a bit thicker, aren't they, these these space agencies? Oh, we're bored with Mars. Let's go on to Venus Let's go somewhere else. But, you know, the the thing is with Mars, we've still got so much to learn. And I think some people look at it and go, we've had so many missions. There's so many rovers. Surely we know everything there is to know. And we just don't because we can't explore that much of a planet. These rovers move slowly. You know, they have to gather data very carefully. You know, the, the best thing to do would be to send humans up there because they would be able to cover ground much quicker. And we're just very clever things. You know, we're much cleverer than robots. We can do things a lot better, but that's not a safe thing to do. So we still need to discover a lot more about Mars. And in particular, you know, I really want the question answered, did it ever have life in its past? I don't think they're going to find anything there at the present day. But there is a really strong possibility that it it could have been a a life-giving world at some point in its past. And what for you will be the highlight of 2022 or what are you looking forward to the most? Uh, lot, there's lots coming up, but one of the things I'm excited about, which actually relates to my my first book, Catching Stardust, is the DART mission, because we're going to be slamming into an asteroid, which I guess is quite topical at the moment with the Netflix movie, Don't oh, Look Up don't and everything. Up, but yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I loved it. But, um, <laughs> but so did I, so did I. Yeah. It was a fun thing to watch. Um, it was a good Christmas. I think I did it as a Boxing Day movie. But, um, but yeah, the DART mission is going to be looking at how we can redirect asteroids. So it's going to slam into the asteroid, a very small one, Um, And then in about five years time, we're going to go back with a follow up mission to look at the crater that's been produced. And we're going to be measuring how the asteroid is uh, the course of the asteroids has changed because of that impact, which seems kind of silly. You know, it's just a tiny asteroid, but it's really important that we're testing this technology. And particularly, you know, if you've seen the movie, then you know that, you know, and this thing can happen. It's, you know, it's not science fiction. Um, We do need to be worried about about the future. So if you get that call, you know, in in early hours of the morning by a sort of anonymous looking van and government official, we need to be very, very worried. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Natalie, thank you very much. The book is Fire and Ice, the Volcanoes of the Solar System. And Neil deGrasse Tyson says on the front, it's mind expanding. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Natalie. Natalie, Thank thank you. you so much. And we'll hear more on XMRs very shortly with one of the mission's principal investigators and by the way if you're interested in natalie's book which is great by the way we've got a nice little special deal for you here from the publishers if you want to buy it from ww i think this is primarily for uk listeners i think www.bloomsbury.com bloomsbury being the publishers you can order her book fire and ice Enter the code SPACEBOFFINS, or one word, at the checkout, and you'll get 25% off. Does that so work for good. other things? I don't if know. If you enter the code SPACEBOFFINS at checkout. Yeah. Can we try. order chocolate? Try, or, give it a try. Or, or wine? Yeah. Or... Oh, yeah, I'll give it a try. Try space boffins at checkout. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to mention a couple of the other things uh, coming up in 2022. We do a lot of space fight, a lot of astronauts in this podcast. And, I mean, there's a couple of biggies this year. Uh, we should see the first launch of Artemis, or Artemis 1, they're calling it, which is the first launch of the SLS, the Space Launch System, with the Orion capsule on the top. And, and this will get forgotten, I bet you, in the NASA commentaries, the ESA service module. So you imagine like the Apollo spacecraft, you had the command module at the top, the, the, 
part with the astronauts in. Then behind that, you had the service module with those little thrusters on side, little crosses on the side. Well, this time round, ESA, the European Space Agency, has built that service module. So we get the first flight of that without astronauts on board. That's heading off around the moon in quite this really quite high orbit around the moon. So that's the big one coming up in the next few months in 2022. One other space flight mention. <laughs> now, uh, I have to confess here. I think it was three years ago when we were talking about the first flight of Dragon and the first flight oh, yeah. of Boeing Starliner. I predicted that Starliner would fly first. Oh, did you? Yeah. Well, it's still not flown with a crew on board. Uh, that's due later this year. You may remember the first flight uh, didn't go as planned when it failed to dock with the International Space Station. Uh, and so there should be a flight of that uh, this year. And then we will actually see then two potential ways of getting crew to the International Space Station from the US. And then when the Orion flies with the crew, America will have three spacecraft carrying astronauts that, yeah that, that is dragon starliner and orion so I that that is i mean that's quite a new era really isn't it <laughs> but i'm beginning to think that our podcast is a little bit like a space mission in that it's sort oh. of variable which end of the month time of the month it sort of arrives and uh there was one, wasn't there, last year when October was delivered? No, November had on two. The first of <laughs> yes, November had two podcasts, yeah. But the reason this one, by the way, is slightly late is because, like the rest of the planet, uh, Rich and I both got COVID over... Uh, uh, I spectacularly got it Christmas Eve and um, kindly shared it with um, our son and... Uh, and uh, you. Yeah, I got it New Year's Eve. <laughs> you got it New yeah. Year's Eve. So, so, so yeah. That's but, our excuse for this least, month's space walking being late. Like, well, I don't, can't back. remember what November's excuse was. No, but, I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah, we didn't have yeah. COVID as an excuse then, but never mind. But say, we'll just say it's the delayed mission parameters or something like that. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Do follow us or get in touch on Facebook and Twitter and you can email, as Tom did with his question on the web telescope, podcast at spaceboffins.com, which um, apparently works. Yeah, I checked it. It it does work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, For this podcast, we're once again very kindly supported by the UK Space Agency, who also more significantly are supporting ESA's ExoMars mission to Mars. After a two-year delay caused by problems with the parachutes, the mission's due for launch in the autumn carrying with it the UK-built Rosalind Franklin rover. Now, the rover will be able to drill down two metres to search for signs of past life on the Red Planet. It also has a sophisticated stereo camera system called PanCam, which is mounted on a sort of stalk arrangement at the front. Now, I've been chatting to the principal investigator for PanCam, Andrew Coates, from UCL's Mullard Space Science Laboratory, and suggesting to him that everything was looking good for launch. It is looking good, yeah. So the flight model rover is all ready to go and the parachutes have been tested. The parachutes are very important because, of course, landing on Mars is very difficult in that thin carbon dioxide rich atmosphere. So the parachutes have got to slow the thing down before it eventually fires retro rockets from the Kazachok landing platform and then eventually lands on the surface. And those have recently been tested in December and uh, they work well. So that's really great news. Ready with the rover, there have been a lot of tests with that, um, especially with the ground test model, which is called Amalia now after an Italian scientist who invented some of the 
pioneering work about orbits, which which has been done. And then also recently, there was a test of actually the thing driving off the landed platform. And so that's something which is going to be very important. So really, all of the phases of the mission have been tested. We're ready with the software. We're ready with the simulations. There are still some more simulations to go. But uh, yes, fingers crossed and waiting for the launch in, in September this year. How different will this rover be to the NASA rovers? I'm thinking particularly the current generation of NASA rovers, the two that are on the the surface at the moment. What will this be able to do that they they can't? Yes, um, this rover is going to be able to drill two meters underneath the surface. The NASA rovers at, at the present can drill sort of six centimeters, something like that. That's both curiosity and perseverance. Perseverance, of course, is collecting samples ready to be brought back to Earth by the sample return mission, which will include the Mars Fetch rover. So it's collecting those samples, but it's only drilling 6.6 centimeters. So with ExoMars, Rosalind Franklin, we're going to be drilling up to two meters underneath the surface. This is very important because biomarkers, you know, have a limited lifetime and and actually being able to get those successfully from underneath the surface is very important. So biomarkers are are really the the signatures that there could have been life. So you're not necessarily looking for life now, but signatures of possible life in the past. Yes, exactly. So 3.8 billion years ago, Mars was a very different place with water on the surface, water in the atmosphere. The NASA rovers have really been looking for evidence for that and found that spectacularly well. Uh, and indeed, Mars Express has been looking at, at water as well. So it was habitable at that time. But now the Martian surface is, is sort of uninhabitable. So we're looking for that signs of life from 3.8 billion years ago. And the best way to find it is by drilling underneath the, the harsh surface. So at the moment, because of that thin atmosphere which Mars has, the thin carbon dioxide rich atmosphere, less than 1% of the Earth's atmospheric pressure, that means that um, things like ultraviolet can penetrate to the surface. So it's like living under an ozone hole all the time. So that's really not good for life. Also, radiation from space, both galactic cosmic radiation and solar energetic particles, those can get to the surface as well. There's also oxidization of the surface. So with ExoMars, Rosalind Franklin will be able to get underneath all that. So you need to drill a millimeter to get underneath the ultraviolet, something like a meter to get underneath most of the oxidants. And then below about one and a half metres to get below some of the effects of the ionising radiation. And so that's the key thing we'll be able to do with this rover compared to any other. So this is why it has a really unique place in the Mars exploration story to be able to drill and get old samples from 3.8 plus billion years ago to be able to analyse those on board and send the information back to Earth. So that's what we're doing. And the really key thing about this is the deep drilling. Now, you're the principal investigator for PanCam, and this is the, I should say, the rover's fitted with multiple cameras and navigation cameras, but you've got the PanCam, which is really your stereoscopic camera. What would you be able to do with that? I mean, scientifically do with that? Yes. So we're really the science eyes of the the ExoMars rover. So as well as just being able to take simple stereo pictures, we can not just do that, but actually our eyes, our two eyes, the wide angle cameras are actually very far apart, 50 centimetres apart. So we can do better stereo reconstruction than the human eyes can do. Also, each of those cameras has a filter wheel in front of it, which allows us to do geology and atmospheric science. So those filters 
sort of filter out particular colors. So they're looking for particular colors and, you know, very special signatures really of minerals on Mars. And so that's the type of thing we'll, we'll be able to do with the, with those filters. So not just look. So say you were looking at a, a rock or a plane or a rock face. You can't, not just seeing it in visible light, you'd be able to, to assess what's there at the same time. Yes, we're we're sort of splitting up the colours of the light um, to be able to look at red, green, and blue. It's all in the visible, and then just to the uh, the very near part of the infrared. So the filters are arranged so that we can have really good identification of water-rich minerals. So we're looking at the rocks in different colours, putting those images together in order to get a spectrum of the individual rocks. So that's a really sort of smart thing about this camera. In addition to the wide-angle cameras with those filters, there's also a high-resolution camera, which again looks in colour. So with that, we'll be able to look at things like grain texture and um, uh, rock structure and, and things like that. It's looking effectively it's not a zoom but it's a it's a high resolution picture of the rock which we're looking at and then also in one of the pixels of that high resolution camera exomars has a infrared spectrometer so we're able to get additional wavelengths into the infrared more which helps immensely with the mineralogy so getting the minerals and the geology right so really pancam the, the you know it's not just looking at the surface of mars but it's we've packed as much science as we can into what is basically a camera system to do really that geology and the atmospheric science as well so the geology is is very important for effectively helping to decide where to drill the atmospheric science is important for seeing what the conditions are like on Mars. So, for example, some of the filters on the wide-angle cameras were able to look at water vapour. So we'll be able to watch the sun setting on Mars and measure the amount of water between the sun and the rover. And so that gives you, you know, I've got a student working on working out how we get the vertical profile of water in the atmosphere. And that leads to water escaping to space as well. So very exciting, um, lots of science in it. And PanCam is really well set up to be able to be the science eyes of the rover. We're all used to these images of Mars, particularly most recently from Perseverance and Curiosity. What are we going to see on this particular location that the Rosalind Franklin rover is going to? Well, this location, we're going to Oxyoplanum. So this is a slightly older location than the Perseverance rover is, is looking at at the moment. So with Mars, it's all about the sort of history of, of how life could have developed and uh, you know a, lo- a long time ago and so 3.9 to 4 billion years ago is that's the that's the age of this uh, area which we're going to so it's a little bit away from Jezero crater which is where the uh, perseverance is looking we also have a small involvement in that as well but these are, will be really complementary they're both very old surface of mars but actually oxyoplanum just sort of pips it to the post in terms of this is the oldest terrain we're able to easily get to on Mars. We all, there's also signs of water having played a role in the in the past. So there are clays on the surface which are from that water. Those have been seen from orbit. And so it's a really good location. It's also at an outflow channel. So lots of material from the surrounding the northern bits of the of the southern highlands of Mars, uh, there's a sort of big catchment area and the water coming out of this channel would have sort of concentrated that. So potential signs of life 3.8 to 4 billion years ago, that's the type of thing which we're, which we're um, aiming to, to get. And the best way of looking for these mar- uh, biomarkers is to drill deep. And so that's what we're doing with, um, with ExoMars, uh, Rosalind Franklin. So I'm really looking forward to this because um, we've been working on this for a very long time. So 
we wrote the proposal for the PanCam instrument back. It wasn't called that at the time, but we merged it later on. But um, but PanCam has been going since 2003, actually since before the launch of Mars Express and Beagle 2. So Rosalind Franklin has a key place in, in the future of Mars exploration by drilling deep and analysing the samples and sending the results back to Earth. So I'm really looking forward to it. Professor Andrew Coates, and you can hear his excitement, I think, there about the mission. I do feel I've followed this mission forever. Oh, you and me both, yeah. Absolutely. I saw the first concept rover lurking in a back corridor, what was then Astrium, Oh, uh, yes, in Stevenage. Yeah. Uh, and then we've, of course, seen the Mars Yard where they've tested rover concepts. And then finally, mm. seeing the Rosalind Franklin rover in the, in the clean room, what became Airbus. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen the, um, Rosalind Franklin in so many stages of, <laughs> of undress, it feels like, with all the different electrical versions and what have you. And in fact, when I took, uh, Wally Funk to, uh, as a surprise visit when she was staying with us, um, to Airbus to have a look at the Mars Yard. She absolutely loved it. She wanted to ride it. I think there is a picture. I mean, she that wants would be to a ride sight, everything, does Wally, Wally Funk on a Mars rover on Mars. <laughs> yeah. You can imagine that. Can't she you? was yeah. fascinated by it. Absolutely fascinated by it. So yes, we, we have lived this. And wasn't, um, that rover also involved with the live link up, um, with the International Space Station? No, that was a different rover. With, with Tim Peake. Well, oh, was one of the rovers. Yeah. They've done one of, yes, one of, yeah. Well, they have lots of rovers. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. have multiple rovers. They're also rovers. I think there's some rovers in Italy, and I think there's a rover in <laughs> the Netherlands as well. They're rival They're rovers like across Europe. They're doubles, though, aren't yeah, they, they, as they well? Are. Everyone yeah. thinks they've seen the yeah. ExoMars rover. Remember, I drove a rover a long time ago at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They have By a, remote control. Yeah, so yeah. they let me drive one of the rovers. So they test it out there to see, you know, to stop it getting stuck on rocks and things oh, yeah, yeah. and i got it stuck on a rock that's right yeah. <laughs> very proud of that <laughs> now some sad news about someone we featured on the podcast several times another legend of the apollo era the engineer responsible for the spacecraft's alarm system jerry woodfill has sadly passed away now i first met jerry about five years ago when i interviewed him for a bbc radio program in the lead up to the apollo 11 50th anniversary we kept in touch ever since and uh, he sent well, actually a lovely email recently when my when my dad died jerry applied to nasa after hearing jfk's famous speech at rice stadium in houston and ended up working in the apollo mission evaluation room when the master alarm sounded during Apollo 13, he was there helping to work out what had gone wrong and how to get the astronauts back alive. Well, remarkably, Jerry stayed with the agency for a total of 55 years. He was still an employee when he died. Well, Jerry was a larger-than-life character that did so much to communicate the history of Apollo and the significance of human space exploration. He sang about the mission and even supplied us with the exact sound of the Apollo 13 Master Alarm for our Audible Space Race series. Well, we last spoke to Jerry in our October podcast, but let's have an extract from an interview we played on Space Boffins back in April 2020 about Apollo 13. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Main B bus undervolt. Roger, main B undervolt. And Fred Hayes says, and we had a bang and along with the caution and warning. We had a pretty large bang associated with the um, caution and warning there. He said that along with the caution. So I had my headset on, 
and I'm hearing Fred Hayes and Jim Lovell and Jack Swigert, they're saying we've had a problem. And I'm seeing a console. I'm seeing a indication of the, my alarm system has rung a master alarm. That's a tone that they hear. It'd be like a, a police car coming down NASA Parkway. You'd hear that. Astronauts are hearing that. Well, I'm not hearing that, but I'm hearing their call for help, and I'm also seeing uh, uh, that the alarm system has come. But then I'm seeing that there are seven different alarms almost simultaneously that come on, and, and I'm thinking, I've got a problem. I mean, you, yeah, Houston, we've got a problem, but Jerry's got a problem because his alarm system can't be that can't be having seven alarms simultaneously. There's got to be a problem with my system with instrumentation. We may have had an instrumentation problem, Flight. Roger. Okay, uh, let's get let's get our instrumentation uh, lined up here, you guys. ECS, what do you got? Brown, are you copying us? Air to ground. Yeah, voltage is Look at that, pressure. Well, then, Jim Lovell, he looks out of the port of his command ship and he sees something venting. He says this. He says, "I see something venting." When I heard that. I said, oh, it's not the alarm system. Jerry's system is working very well. In fact, it is the first alert that the astronauts had. They heard that bang, and they, the master alarm came on, the tone came on. Flight, say again. You called in your backup ECOMs now, see if we can get some more brain power in this We thing. got one here. Roger. So that was my highlight of my 53-year, it happened a long time ago. You know, but it is the thing that I share a lot about. And, of course, then I worked with the team for the next four days to help bring them back to Earth. And I was a member of the team, and we got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Nixon. And so I, I have that hung in my office, the plaque that all of us shared that actually worked on the rescue. Odyssey Houston, we show you on the mains. It really looks great. The extremely loud applause as Apollo 13 on the main shoots comes through loud and clear on the television display here. It was not an option when the whole world prayed. Apollo 13 rescue. Jerry Woodfill's Apollo 13 song, and, and you also heard uh, his recreation of the exact sound of the Apollo 13 master alarm, not like in the film. And uh, you can hear the full interview with Jerry in our April 2020 podcast, and the other interview I mentioned was in October. It's sad, really, isn't it? Because we were, you were due to interview him. I was. I was talking just about a few it. Weeks yeah, ago. because we both struggled yes. with the technology when we talked uh, before Christmas, and we'd actually set up to do an interview in uh, in, in January. January yeah. yeah, and then I got an email saying he was he was very ill, and then an email oh, yeah. a few days ago uh, to say he'd passed away. So. Well, hope hope you're. Uh... Up there, amongst the stars. He'll be in the uh, the Moor, the uh, mission evaluation room. <laughs> yeah, in the sky. In the sky, yeah. And that's the January 2022 edition of Space Boffins. Thank you very much to the UK Space Agency for their support. I sort of feel at this point we should have a jingle. Like, the, you know, the UK Space Agency, the best space agency in the world. In the world. If, if anyone wants to make one for <laughs> us... 
just send it. Was, it was just a thought. We'd, we'd love it. Put a few little, you know, pew, pew. Oh, no, we don't want it to sound like military-based. Oh, actually, I'd quite like it as a Star Wars. Maybe it could be, like, really enough, like, da, 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 da. Oh, no, that's the French national anthem. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's... That's much better. That... Ours is boring, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, thank you very much to the UK <laughs> Space Agency for their support do you get in touch drop us a note you know email whatever follow us on facebook or twitter you know jog me on instagram and may respond do you, do you know unlikely. that the new clerk found out the login and yeah i know i have so I just, what do you do jog you it's too much let's just say i've got too much on which <laughs> Don't. What do you say jog to you on? Is that jog, what you do? Jog my memory. No, whenever I, it's I get... It's not a no, thing. It's, it's one like... of the few things I have notifications on for, only because I can't work how to switch that one off. <laughs> and so when people... Because follow quite some quite groovy space people, and I do like seeing them. It's stuff. quite good. I mean, Instagram um, is good for then space. Whenever yeah. I get a, a little notification, usually from Alexander Milas or Matt Taylor or somebody from the Eurovision Space Agency that I follow. I suddenly thought, oh, oh, I should really... We should engage more, shouldn't we? But, you know, maybe call it the pandemic. It's like, you know... I don't engage at all with Instagram. It's enough to do the jobs, do the stuff. Make the podcast. Make the podcast, do all our filming stuff and radio programmes and and stop myself going bark, stark raving mad. (laughs) (laughs) I've had enough. I can't do it. What's thing? I'm not going to take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. And on that bombshell, <laughs> so, we'll be back next it. month. Thanks for listening. Bye.